over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley, In Context. Well, welcome to In Context. We're delighted today to have Dr. Christopher Wright on the broadcast. A little bit about his background, and if you don't know about him, I hope you'll do some homework and purchase some of his resources. But Chris was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He's the son of missionary parents. He grew up in an Irish Presbyterian background. He went to the University of Cambridge and began his career as a school teacher in Belfast. He completed a doctorate in the Old Testament in ethics, which we'll have to talk about that. Old Testament economic ethics at Cambridge. He was ordained in the Anglican Church of England in 1977 and has served as pastors in various parishes. In 1983, he went to India with his family to Union Biblical Seminary for five years, teaching in the seminary there a variety of Old Testament courses at both their bachelor's and master's level. In 88, he returned to the UK as the academic dean of All Nations Christian College, which uh, for those of you that know a little bit about the history there, it's very exciting to see the continuation of evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing education. In 2001, he became the international director of Langham Partnership International, and many of you will know the name John Stott, who actually was the originator of these groups of ministries committed to helping the church throughout the world. So all that said, Dr. Wright, thanks for joining us on the broadcast. You're welcome, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, that was all pretty true. I think I recognized myself. So just for for my own benefit, what is the Old Testament economic ethics? Oh, right. Yeah, well, that was looking at uh, what the the Torah, the law, mainly those chapters in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and also in the prophets, what they have to say about issues of land, property, wealth, um, economic things like uh, the family, slavery, children, work, a uh, whole, whole range of, of issues that the Old Testament has a lot to say about, um, credit and debts and poverty and all of those things. A huge amount that shows God's great interest, actually, in, in human society, um, human agriculture. Uh, all of those things are, are very much there in the Old Testament. I think quite relevant, unfortunately, rather ignored in uh, the last few hundred years by the church, but they have a lot to teach us. And that is our job, as one of my professors said, we are in the business of ongoing re-education because uh, every culture needs to relearn and everyone needs to be reminded of what we are to believe, right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump into Lamentations. Now, we attribute this to Jeremiah, who has written the second longest book in our Old Testament text. And when you start with Lamentations, the title itself can be off-putting to a reader, but in this uncanny book, in some of the most desperate times, dark times of Israel and Judah's life, there's some bright theology in here. So, Dr. Wright, let's begin then with a, a history, a background of the Book of Lamentations. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you mentioned the fact, obviously, that it comes in our Bibles. It comes immediately after the book of Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah ends with the most traumatic event in the whole Old Testament, which was the destruction of Jerusalem by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 587 B.C. Um, and that led, of course, to enormous suffering, disease, death, uh, bloodshed in the city itself. And then the city was burnt to the ground. The temple was destroyed. And a lot of the people were carried off into exile. So that, that's how the book of Jeremiah ends. And the book of Lamentations, uh, fairly obviously and clearly and, and, and really uncontroversially, comes out of that experience. Uh, it's, it's written, in a sense, as a reaction to the just phenomenal suffering that that, that caused. Uh, so that's, that's what Lamentation is all about. It, it means uh, the lament, the cry of pain and suffering and protest uh, that emerged from, from that traumatic experience of, of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. It's hard, I think, for modern readers, myself included. I traveled to Israel uh, many times. I lead groups over there. And when you think about, as you mentioned, the, the destruction of this complex and the exile, I mean, I don't know, analogous, I don't think Americans could even grasp the Capitol buildings, the White House, the Russell buildings, the Cannon, the EOB being destroyed mm. and yeah. people taken into captivity. And this was the religious center of the world for Christian and Jew, and, and you're watching it be dismantled. That's right. And, and I mean, as you say, for Americans and British people like myself, it's very difficult to imagine this because nothing quite like this has happened in, you know, in, in our day, at least on this scale. But, you know, if we use a bit of imagination, look what's happening, you know, or has happened in Syria in recent years, you know, mm -hmm. with the complete wiping out of cities or even the, some of the, you know, newsreels of the, the Second World War. And you see uh, the immense bombing damage it's done and then whole populations being displaced and, uh, you know, sent into exile. And we call them now refugees, but um, they were basically captives of war in uh, it, the Israelites were. So... With a bit of imagination of what's happening in some parts of the world, uh, there are still people who are suffering the kind of things that um, the Book of Lamentations describes. He begins, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Mm. It does. And that word, how, the, the very first word in our English language, that's how the first three chapters begin, is actually a word of lament, lamentation. It's, it's in, in Hebrew, it's a great howl, almost literally, a yahal. And how lonely, how deserted. And the city here, the very next line says, like a widow she is. That's one of the, the things about Lamentations is that it's poetry, of course. And in the poetry, the author has characterized Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, as a woman. It's feminine all the way through. She is the, the widow, the woman who has been raped and violated and is now sitting in the dust and who speaks a, a few times in chapters one and two. But the, the genius, in a sense, of the poetry is that the writer, the narrator, puts himself as a character. He speaks to her and he lets her speak. Uh, and so there's a certain amount of dialogue which happens, especially in chapters one and two. And then in chapter three, he sort of takes over. He, he says... Uh, at the beginning of chapter three, I am the man who has seen all this. So the the, the emphasis shifts to himself. He, he still speaks as a kind of personification of the people. He speaks on behalf of the people. But the, the opening two chapters are very much uh, an engaged dialogue between the man himself, the narrator, and Jerusalem or Zion, Lady Zion, she's called, uh, daughter of Zion in the older versions, but sort of Lady Zion. She's a woman. Uh, and she's obviously in a desperate state. She's dirty, she's filthy, she's weeping, she's comfortless. 
she's appealing almost with her. You can imagine her sort of sitting in the dust with her hands raised and a tear-stained face, looking up at anybody who's passing by, you know, almost like a beggar and, and asking for somebody to take notice and to have comfort for her. And there's nothing. So it's it's a very desolate picture that we have, especially in chapters one and two. I think um, the phrase uh, none to comfort her occurs uh, one, two, three, four, five times through the text uh, yes. that she has no one to comfort, none to comfort her. So uh, obviously the parallel and the good picture you give us. Um, when I come down in chapter one to verse five, for the Lord has caused her grief because mm. of the multitudes of her transgressions. Um, modern sensibilities, it's hard for us to see God using enemy nations to discipline his own people, his own land. Yes, that, that's, there, there are several aspects to that, um, Michael. I mean, first of all, yes, verse 5 and several other verses, like mm-hmm. uh, verse 18, she, she admits it. She says that this has happened because of the judgment of God. The Lord is righteous. I rebelled against him. So there is an awareness in the book of Lamentations that what has happened to the city of Jerusalem has happened because of the judgment of God. Now, there's a couple of things to say. First of all, that that doesn't kind of make it, oh, well, that's okay then. They just got what they deserved, you know, so we can kind of have a a grim sense of satisfaction or something uh, because the book clearly wants to also say, yes, we accept that it was God's judgment, but hey, guys, it was desperately painful. Was it too much? Uh, How can even God bear to look on this? So uh, the fact that it's judgment doesn't somehow make it easy reading or say, well, that's, that's okay. But the other thing to say, picking up what you mentioned, is that, of course, this is this is what you do get throughout the whole of the Old Testament. This isn't just 587 B.C. In the Old Testament, we have this interesting balance between God dealing with individuals as individuals. They're responsible to him and their actions are responsible and they, they reap the consequences of what they do. And we see plenty of individual stories of that of people being punished for wrongdoing and so on, and then some others repenting and being forgiven. But the Old Testament also, I think, is very clear that God deals with nations as wholes. Now, that's harder for us to get our heads around, because in the West, we are so individualistic. Uh, And also, we've got a a modern world in which we think of nations as nation states, with, you know, governments and boundaries and armies and all of that. And the Old Testament is thinking of nations much more in terms of people in a broader sense, you know, ethnic groups and languages and so on. And it does say that God deals with peoples as wholes uh, and can use one nation, one people uh, in his sovereign governance of history as the agent of his either his blessing or his judgment on other peoples. Um, the, the, the Old Testament is full of that. It's, very, it's made very clear in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, that God used the Israelites as a nation to bring judgment on the Canaanites for their wickedness and sin. Deuteronomy chapter 9, that don't think it's because you're more righteous than the other nations that God is driving them out before you, but because of their wickedness. But then God did also say to the Israelites very clearly in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus that, look, if you go the way of the Canaanites, if you behave with idolatry and injustice and oppression and exploitation and immorality and all the things that are there in the Canaanite nation, if you go that way, then I'll drive you out of the land also. Uh, So the warnings are very clearly there, especially in the language of the curses and so on in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere. And those warnings are then repeated for centuries. I mean, this happens, you know, 587, that's the sixth century. 
And for several hundred years before that, God, we might say, had been patient. He'd, he'd been begging his people to repent and to change. He'd sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, uh, and yet they refused. So when when the calamity falls, in a sense, there is this theological recognition that this has, A, not happened without warning, that B, we were told and we did deserve it, but still it was awful. And so it's this balance between in a sense, justifying the ways of God. This is God doing what God said he would do, and yet at the same time recognizing that it happened through the hands of a very evil and wicked nation, namely the Babylonians, and they inflicted on the Israelites enormous suffering and bloodshed, for which they would be held accountable also, um, we read at the end of Jeremiah. When uh, we read stories of Adam and Eve in the garden narrative, and we say, you know, one prohibition, just one, uh, and then, of course, they fall, and we just see the multiplications of laws and regulations and rules. And the human condition, it's, you know, a friend of mine says, if you put a, a sign on a piece of glass that says, don't break, our pension is we're going to break it. Mm. If, if nothing was there, we wouldn't think, perhaps, not to break the piece of glass. But if it says, don't break, we're tempted to break it. And it seems the human condition <laughs> It's just uh, the penchant for Israel so clearly in the blessing and cursing motifs. Uh, if you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I'll protect you. If you do this, I'll make you a great nation. And, um, you know, they're, they're considered a stubborn, uh, stiff-necked people. I call myself a stiff-necked Gentile. But that said, when we come to chapter 2, the way the author, Jeremiah, who I believe pins it, he puts the subject matter back on God. He has cast from heaven his anger, mm. his footstool, his anger. He has not spared his wrath. He has thrown down. Um, so the attribution to this is very clear. So let's go back to a pious, devout Jew who was God-fearing during the time of Jeremiah. How is he, how is she processing this? Because the warnings could not have been more clear, as you've already said, but yet we're going to be disobedient and like other nations anyway. Yeah. First of all, just going stepping back a little bit to what you said earlier, the covenant relationship between God and Israel needs to be carefully put that God made this promise to Israel through Abraham at the very beginning, and the whole of their life is based upon the promise of God and the blessing yes. of God uh, and the redemption of God. Uh, it's it's not, as it were, a kind of tit for tat, as if God says, Look, right. um, you know, I'm going to bless you if you do this. The, the blessing is already axiomatic in that relationship. And God says, the only way you can stay within this sphere of my blessing is through obedience. Obedience is not what deserves God's blessing. It is a response to God's blessing. Um, that That's quite important to say. And and so therefore, the the curses are effectively God saying, but if, if you choose to step outside the realm of my covenant blessing by disobedience and behaving like the other nations, then, you know, you run into the electric fence, as it were, um, <laughs> uh, because you, you're setting yourself outside the realm of God's covenant election, redemption and blessing. So that that, that is what has now happened here, you see. So um, you're quite right. Th- those those. Verses in the first half of the chapter two are, are relentless. You know, he has done this. He has hurled out. Mm-hmm. You're quite right. There's no softening the fact that when God acts in judgment, it is God acting, uh, even though, of course, we know that in this case, he acted through the agency of, of human armies and, and, and empires and so on. We don't, as it were, excuse the Babylonians because they didn't know what they were doing. God did it. But equally, in a sense, if I can put it like this without being irreverent, we can't excuse God by saying, well, it was only the Babylonians and they thought it was God. No, it, it really was. God was acting in judgment. And 
if anything, a book like Lamentations is also a warning that, you know, there is a reality to God's reaction against evil and wickedness and sin, uh, and that the consequences of evil and wickedness and sin, if they're not repented of and changed, ultimately do meet the wrath and the judgment of God. So, you know, one could balance a book like Lamentations with, say, something like some of the sayings of Jesus. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there, and I want to get there as we continue our discussion. But before we leave chapter 2, uh, one of the verses that always catches me when I, when I read through the text is uh, verse 6 in chapter 2, he has destroyed his appointed meeting place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, and, yeah, an absolute. Oh, it's like this was the, the, the worship center, the place where he established his name, was the only place you could worship according to his regulations. And if we just look, for example, at Passover, the, the protocol for worshiping, for following from Exodus 12 and, and, and following, and the expansion we have in Leviticus, how a zenith of worship that was. And finally, through Solomon, he's going to allow them to build this complex. And then <laughs> Jeremiah says, he has destroyed his appointed meeting place. Yep. To me, at this point, you're falling on your face or you're falling backwards going, there's no there's no solution. You're absolutely right. That That is very shocking. And of course, uh, Zion herself, at the end of the chapter, when, when she eventually speaks um, in verses 20, 21, at the end of the chapter, and, and 22, the narrator pleads with her to speak, arise and cry out, pour out your heart to the Lord. And all she can do is saying, says to the God in verse 20, whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat mm. offspring? Should children they've cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? She too is utterly shocked that God has destroyed his own sanctuary and his own priests and his own prophets. But of course, you see, if you go back to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah had warned about this in the temple itself, in Jeremiah chapter 7. Uh, he, God says to the, the people in, in the very gates of the temple, if you will change your ways, then I will let you go on living in this place. But if you don't, if you go on committing idolatry and adultery and immorality and oppression, exploitation, then I will make you like Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh was the place that had been where the Ark of the Covenant was in the time of Samuel and the Philistines. Mm -hmm. But by the time of Jeremiah, Shiloh was an an archaeological site. It was a wreck. It was a ruin. Uh, It was abandoned. Uh, And God, the shocking words of Jeremiah, for which they nearly lynched him, by the way, in chapter 26, uh, that God would destroy his own temple. But at the very end of Lamentations in chapter 5, the closing words Chapter 5, verse 18, the writer says, Mount Zion lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. That's what had mm-hmm. happened. They'd knocked it down, and it was now a haunt for wild animals. It was totally destroyed. The very next verse says, verse 19, But you, Lord, you reign forever. Mm-hmm. Your throne endures from generation to generation. So the implication of that is, yes, Jerusalem was destroyed, the palace was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, but God was still on the throne. And, and that's a word of hope at the very end, even though it immediately struggles with, have you forgotten us forever? (laughs) But that, of course, is the words of the prophets and of the Psalms, you see, because if you look at the the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 74, Psalm 79, Psalm 89, all speak about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, and uh, the apparent abandonment by God of his promise to David, you know, have you forgotten us? What do you then get? The very next book of the Psalms, that is from Psalm 90 onwards, especially uh, 96, 98, talk about God being enthroned, the throne of God. 
just because we haven't got a king in Jerusalem, just because we haven't got a palace and a temple, doesn't mean that God doesn't reign. We have to turn to the living, reigning God. Uh, and even the Book of Lamentations is able to get there eventually, right at the end. Talk to us a little bit about the change in, uh, I think you used the word prose or, or poetic. In chapter 2, we, we have this recounting, as you will, of, of God being, maybe not the best word, but the orchestrator of this because of their sin. But when we come to 3, it's personalized. Jeremiah is now talking about how it affected him. I am the man who has seen the affliction. And it's interesting how he then moves it from Israel to because of the rod of his wrath, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not light. And it's very personal. Uh, verse 8, he shuts out my prayer. Mm. He makes my path crooked. Yeah. Yes, I, I think chapter 3 is, is remarkable because, as you rightly say, it shifts from being purely a dialogue between the narrator and and the woman, Lady Zion, to being very personal. I am the man. So, yeah, and, and I agree with you. In, in my opinion, although a, lo- a lot of scholars you know, aren't sure if Jeremiah is the author, in my opinion, there's no reason why he isn't. Um, it's a, the book is anonymous, of course. It doesn't anywhere tell us who wrote it. But this chapter 3 very much sounds like Jeremiah himself. But even having said that, as with the book of Jeremiah, his own book of prophecy, there are passages in the prophecy of Jeremiah where when he when he uses the word I or me, it's sometimes a little bit ambiguous whether he's meaning himself personally or is he talking about Israel in a kind of personified way. Correct, correct, yeah. And indeed, even sometimes he uses the I or me. It's hard to tell whether it's Jeremiah or God. You know, who who is the one who's weeping in Jeremiah? Right. Uh, and clearly, sometimes it's God through the tears of Jeremiah. So I think with this chapter, the I is clearly the author. But when he speaks about being walled in, about being chained, about being you know mauled by a bear, or being shot by bows, his heart pierced, all of this broken with his teeth, ground into the dust. There's an element of that which is, I think, partly metaphorical, because as far as we know, those things didn't actually happen to Jeremiah personally. I mean, he wasn't mauled and shot and chained and had his teeth in the gravel and so on. But that's a metaphorical way of speaking about what he felt was the fate of Jerusalem. And then later on, uh, certainly in in, in the book, he he speaks a a way in which he confesses the sin of the people also, like in chapter 5, that we have done this, we have done that. So in Hebrew poetry, which is what this is, it is phenomenal poetry, um, you always have to live with this, in a sense, very fruitful multi-reference with the way in which a text can it can speak at a personal level it can also speak at a corporate level just like when the psalms say of i and me sometimes we right. think those as a church you know this is me speaking right so you, you, the individual author is you know we're reading it from the first person but obviously he's written it as a song or for the congregation and then it becomes identified That's right. um I, I i used to i used the illustration of a tell when I take groups to Israel or when I teach, I say, if you think of a tell, uh, it's rubbled and rebuilt and rubbled and rebuilt and rubbled and rebuilt. And each uh, group of people that lived there for whatever a period of time, uh, they had a message that was pertinent to them, but there's application that continues. Yeah. Uh, and we're building upon this from a theological tell, if you will. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me ask you a, a specific question on chapter three, because by 18, we get the introduction of hope. Yeah. yeah. And he says, uh, which to me is one of the, another just cutting ones, he says in verse 17, I have forgotten happiness. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so I say my strength has perished, and so my hope from the Lord. But then he moves in verse 19 where the pivot is, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness, surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me as this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Yep. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the first time we see a pivot. Yeah, it is. There's no doubt. Um, you, you're quite right. And it's not only a pivot um, there, it's a pivot of the whole book. Um, right. Because uh, we, we haven't yet mentioned it, but part of the poetic brilliance of this book is that it is so well, well, so remarkably structured, because uh, people may not be aware that all of the first four chapters are alphabetical in the sense that in chapters one and two, uh, each of the 22 verses starts with a sequential letter right. in the Hebrew alphabet. Acrostic. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. That's right. But when we get to chapter three, uh, it's intensified that uh, every verse, every of the three lines uh, has the same letter. So it's a triple, triple alphabetic, triple acrostic. Mm. Um, and then chapter four, it's it's still acrostic, but it's only one verse per thing. And in chapter five, he, he loses the acrostic altogether. It sort of limps away. But these verses here at the middle of, of chapter three are not only in the center of chapter three. Chapter three is obviously the middle chapter of the book because there are five chapters. So three is in the middle. And these verses come right in the middle of the book. In fact, the perfect center of the book is, is chapter 3, verses 31 to 33. But you might want to include the previous and the following verses. That It's this incredible sense that having lost all hope in verse 18, as you rightly say, uh, that's where he got to, it lost all hope. He then deliberately chooses to remember something. You, you mentioned verse 21, uh, and in my NIV it says, this I call to mind. It's actually stronger than that. Uh, what he actually says is, I force my heart to remember. I make my mind remember. This is an act of the will. Um, he is choosing to remember, and that's what gives him hope. And what is it he's going to remember? That the Lord's love doesn't come to an end, that God's compassions don't fail. Uh, and so I say to myself, verse 24, the Lord is my portion. I will wait for him. And then comes the verses about it's good to hope in him. It's good to wait. It's good and so on. Mm -hmm. This is the pivot. It's almost like the anchor of the book, which is dropped into the bedrock of the character and faithfulness of God himself. Mm -hmm. That's my way of putting it, I think, in my commentary. I love it. You mentioned the central point of the book. Give me your take then on verse 22, because that's the first mention of chesed, which would be loving kindness, and the NASB, perhaps love or mercy, ESV would use steadfast love. I'm not sure what NIV has at verse 22, but chesed is introduced for the first time, and I think the only time, I'm not positive, uh, in the text. Yes. And so loving kindness is, you know, God loves to be loyal to his covenant people. God loves to be loyal to his covenant promises, even when man is disloyal. And that, to me, is, is where, you know, my heart then surges. Uh, loving kindness indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. And we're, wait. We've just seen the destruction of the temple complex. We've just seen people go into exile. So you're right about the declarative choice in 21. I choose to recall to my mind, I am going to remember this, Um, which I think is a lost part of the Christian life, is that we don't make the choice to remember the good in the middle of the mess. Is uh, You you have to tell yourself, not self-talk nonsense, but you have to remember God's word, and it has not changed. Yes, and it's it's that's absolutely true. But it's not just remembering, uh, as it were, the good in the midst of the bad. 
when the Bible talks about remembering, especially in the Old Testament, they're talking about calling to mind the whole of the Bible story. They're saying... And the covenant, arguably. Yeah, the, you know, remember God's... Back to, you mentioned Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 19. These benchmarks, you got to go back to that. Yes, exactly. You have to remember the story of God in the whole Bible, which, of course, is one thing that the modern church has lost. We've actually lost the plot. I mean, this is part of the problem is, I mean, you mentioned earlier the, the issue of biblical illiteracy and people just not knowing the Bible. Of course, many good Christians, I'm sure many of your listeners, they know their Bibles, but the, the Bible has become either just a book full of rules or maybe more happily a book full of promises uh, or for mm. systematic people, a book full of doctrines. But basically, the Bible is, is a story. It's God's story from creation through the story of the fall and then the promise to Abraham and then the whole history of Israel in which God faithfully preserves them with patience, even through their rebellions. Uh, and so the psalmists often ha say this, look, God, I know we're in a mess, but I choose to remember the great acts of God and what you have done in our history. And yeah. that, I think, is what uh, the, the author here of Lamentations is remembering. And of course, the verses that immediately follow this chesed, the, the, the faithful covenant love of God, these verses are perhaps the only verses of lamentation that most people know, and they only know them right. because of a hymn, not because of the Bible. Right, <laughs> you know, right. Well, it is thy faithfulness, O oh God, right. my Father, you know, uh, new every morning, new mercies I see. And, and so we, we have that bit in our piety. We love those verses, but we don't often recognize the context out of which those verses come, which are absolutely incredible. As you say, how can somebody who's just talked about all the things that God has done to him, grind my teeth in the dust, etc.? then suddenly say, but I, I'm remembering the Lord as a faithful, loving, mm -hmm. compassionate God, but he does. In chapter 3 also, I love how that, I don't know if you call it argument or flow changes, but another verse that just trips me when I read it is verse 39. And of course, it's attached. It's hard to take, you know, just one verse. But when he says, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Yeah, And, you know, when we talk about justice and injustice in life, and not to jump too quickly to application, but in church ministry, you do have people who are going through divorces, whose children are making very poor decisions in life, who have financial trouble, health, cancer, you know, fill in the blank. We all are going to go through these things. And, you know, my reply is always, I never ask God why, but I ask God how. How do I live in light of these conditions? And I love his just candor. You you don't have anything to complain about. Why can any mortal complain about anything in your life? Yeah, that's true. And I, I hear what you're saying. At the same time, of course, this is spoken by somebody who's just spent the last three chapters doing exactly that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, complaining to God. But the point is, he's complaining to God. He's, he's not complaining against, well, he is to some degree complaining against God. At least Lady Zion certainly does. You know, it, right. how have you done this to me? Um, which, of course, they were asking. There is, I think, a proper place for lament and protest to God. Um, you know, it, it's not wrong to, you know, to beat our fists on God's chest, as it were, and say, look, God, this is tough. I just can't bear it. Why are you doing this to me? There is a, the, the Bible, do, they do that. You know, the psalmists do it. Um, Jeremiah does it. Even Jesus does it. You know, why, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it, it, there is there is a, a human response which comes from very deep, which feels a dissonance between suffering mm. and somehow the truth and righteousness of God. I mean, that verse 39, of course, it specifically says in, in my translation, why should any living man complain when he's punished for his sin? 
We've no mm. right to complain when we suffer God's judgment when we've done wrong. And of course, Lady Zion and the narrator know that Judah has done wrong and that they are being punished for their sins. So in a sense, that's not a theological problem. The, the problem more is that the actual punishment seems all so disproportionate, you know, that, that the suffering is so awful that they've had to go through. And how in those circumstances they could still say in verses 25, 26, 27, you know, good is the Lord, good, it is good to wait for him. (laughs) When it doesn't seem... Well, what's the option? Well, and he's not capricious nor malevolent. No. And I I think that's, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the sub-message here is, yes, these things have happened at his hand, yeah. But if we understand why, yes. he's not capricious. Indeed. He's, he's actually holy. He's doing what he said he would do. Yes. He's just. He's, he's doing exactly what he said he would do. And even when he does what he said he would do, he doesn't do it with pleasure. I mean, verses 31, 32, 33 are quite important as well. In yes. Three, uh, because they state the truth. Men are cast off. Yes, they are. God brings grief. Yes, he does. Uh, God afflicts people. Yes, he does. But not forever. Not willingly, not literally, not from his heart. Mm. Ezekiel sort of gets that in Ezekiel chapter 33, where God says, I take no pleasure, says the Lord, in the death of the wicked, but rather right. turn from his wickedness and live. So even when God acts in judgment, it, it's it's an act of, as it were, desperate grief and pain and sorrow to God himself, which is another point, by the way, in the book of Lamentations, is that God never speaks. Zion speaks, the narrator speaks, etc. But God is silent. And there's a power in that silence as if God allows the voices of pain and tears and suffering to be expressed. There's almost a good psychiatry here, you know, that when somebody's expressing (laughs) their pain, you don't interrupt and say, well, it's all right or this or that, you know. It'll be fine. All of that sort of stuff. We (laughs) want to jump in with our words. God doesn't hear. He lets all the grief come out. But that's not because God has nothing to say. God does speak words of comfort, for example, in Isaiah, where so many of the complaints of lamentations are met. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. So when, when Zion complains there is no one to comfort her, you hear God saying up in heaven, well, not just yet, but there will be. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is the God who will wipe away all tears from, from our eyes. You know, the, the comforting God is there. He hasn't disappeared. But Lamentations, in a sense, is a book which gives authenticity and permission to tears and grief and pain and protest and lament. Someone has called it a bottle for the tears of the world, which I think is a a very powerful metaphor. Mm -hmm. But God Mm -hmm. respects the suffering. God allows it to come out. You painted an interesting picture a moment ago about, you know, beating your fists against God's chest. And I love the imagery and I agree. Westerners would say God can take it. You know, at the same time, uh, for the growing, maturing lover of our Lord Jesus Christ, how do we, let, let's go to, you know, shoe leather, how do we incorporate, yes, there's a proper time and place for lamentation, and yes, God can even handle it, let's just say, when we're childish in our complaints, but the recalibration of, you know, I'm a sinner, I deserve this, must come at some point, or not even deserve it, maybe that's not the right language, but I use the phrase, we're fallen people in a fallen context. And yes. so things are not going to go well all the time. So wrap up some applications for us, Dr. Wright, and help us think through what do we do with this as we read it today in 2020. Well, I think the first thing, yes, I uh, appreciate that. The first thing I'd want to say is that we shouldn't read our Bibles without including lamentations. In other, in other words, it's in the Bible, it's there. And <laughs> there it, is that. <laughs> and it expresses enormous grief and suffering, and it allows it to be said. And, of course, that's true for some of the Psalms as well. So 
when Christians, and I suppose especially evangelical Christians, have this mindset, well, it's somehow sinful to be angry with God or to be, you know, upset and lament and complain and so on. And I think God says, look, it's okay. I know what it was like to be human. I mean, even Jesus himself, you know, I'm not saying he got angry with God, but he, he struggled and he suffers and he suffered for us. So a book of Lamentations, in a sense, expresses grief. But not only should we not read the Bible without including Lamentations, we shouldn't read Lamentations without awareness of the rest of the Bible, which is that there is the God of comfort and there is the God of the future. And there is the reality that God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And there is ultimately the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ put himself in this place. He became the one who was abandoned and deserted and destroyed and torn apart. But he did it not because of his sin, but because of ours. Uh, and therefore, through that suffering of Christ and through, of course, his resurrection, uh, we can come to the ultimate answer to Lamentations, which is that we believe in the God who will ultimately put all things right, which is what justification means. It's it's the rectification of all wrong, which ultimately leads us to the final judgment and to the new creation uh, and to the language of, say, Revelation 21, which is the ultimate answer to Lamentations, you know, where God says there be no more suffering, mourning, grief, pain, or death, because God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's a wonderful word to those who are in, in Lamentations. When I've tried to explain and, and teach Lamentations, I've said maybe we should begin in the middle of chapter 3. In other words, we, we know what the truth is. The anchor is there. The anchor is down. That is, God's love is never consumed. His compassions are never fail. They're new every morning. That's the bedrock truth. But even though the anchor is down, doesn't stop the storm raging. We're still, as it were, in a boat being tossed around on a pretty awful sea. And so we live, as you say, in a fallen world in which some of the things we suffer are because of our own sin or folly or stupidity. And some of the things we suffer are simply because we live in a broken, fallen world and stuff happens and accidents happen and things go wrong. But in the midst of that tossing sea, we have that anchor. And here's a book which both has the anchor right in the middle of chapter three, but doesn't spare us the painful, broken, horrible realities that are described in chapters one and two and four and five. And we have to treat both with equal seriousness. But ultimately, we know the end of the story. We know where this leads in the end to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and to the new creation in which these things will be gone forever. Dr. Christopher Wright, author of 30-some books in particular, we're talking about The Message of Lamentations, Honest to God, his book in the InterVarsity uh, series. You can check it out online if you're a user of Logos or Faith Life. You can find it in your library for purchase. We'd encourage you to uh, take a look at many titles that Dr. Wright has written. Christopher, thank you for your time. This has been a delight, and we so appreciate your passion and education for the Word. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.